back to the longest chapter in the New Testament, John chapter 6, back to arguably the longest and clearest self-revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have. Uh, We're going to spend many weeks in this wonderful word, verses 30 through 35 this week, page 891 in the Pew Bible, page 891. Forgive me, I woke up with a bit of a frog in my throat this morning. I'm fine, but my voice is funny, so you got to deal with it. Pay attention to the word, not my ridiculous voice. We come now in this text to what we have already established as the main idea of this longest of discourses. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Are we sure that's the main idea of this text? Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm still not sure. Could you be a little more clear? Verse 48, I am the bread of life. What are you trying to tell us here, Jesus? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is repeating himself for emphasis' sake. And 21 times in this chapter, we read the word bread. The metaphor is beautifully simple and brilliantly profound, and Jesus is beautifully and brilliantly using it to teach us about himself. I am the bread of life. That is our focus today. And bread is food, and food is life. We eat to live, and many of us live to eat. I love to eat. I was actually thinking this morning, I was like, what should we get for takeout today for lunch after church? Like, I want to get some takeout. I want something good to eat. I love food. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving on Thursday. I did. Uh, not that I am biased at all, but year after year, my wife's sweet potato casserole continues to be the best dish there. So good that you guys eat so much of it that I make sure she makes one for me and leaves it at home in the fridge. I have one more serving of it this evening, and I'm very excited. So first place always goes to that. Second place this year probably goes to Jorge's Beans. If you didn't get Jorge's Beans, they were amazing. Uh, The point is, all the food was amazing. Thank you, everyone, who contributed, who made something, who helped. It was, and it always is, a great blessing to eat together. It is a blessing to gather together for fellowship around food. Uh, we, we Baptists are notorious for our love of food. And, and that's generally good. Uh, we're supposed to, known for be, to be known for being biblical. And here, around this, we are. Our love for food and our love for gathering around food is actually quite biblical. Because it would be hard to overstate the centrality of food and meals to the storyline scripture. We could spend a long time developing a biblical theology of food and fellowship and suppers and meals from the very beginning with some of God's first words to the first man and woman being about food to the very end and the great marriage supper of the lamb. Feasting is about fellowship and as I've argued before the whole storyline of scripture is about fellowship. It's about God's fellowship with man. It's about God present with man. And much of that is communicated and symbolized through food and through feasts. And Jesus is picking up on that theme here. You just feasted on Thursday. It is more than cliche to stuff yourself on Thanksgiving and to make yourself miserably full and uncomfortably satisfied. But guess what happened the next day? Guess what happened that night, even? You got hungry. You needed to eat again and again and again, and it never ends. And we are never truly satisfied. 
And this uncomfortable physical reality could and should remind us of a far more uncomfortable spiritual reality. We seek and we consume the things of the world constantly, voraciously, desperately, and yet we are never satisfied. As C.S. Lewis has written, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. I don't really like tea. I don't really love coffee. So mine would be something like, I cannot find a chip cookie which is big enough or a book that is long enough. Why, we agree on the book part. The point is, it's never enough. Nothing satisfies. Nothing lasts. Nothing sustains. And I couldn't help but think this week about how many pop songs pick up on this theme of this insatiable longing and hunger and desire. An obvious example would be the Rolling Stones, right? I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no, oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. Right? Brilliant. Brilliant lyrics on the part of the Rolling Stones there. But no satisfaction. I grew up on the brilliance of U2 in the 80s. I always loved, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And then I realized that, that theme runs throughout U2's uh, kind of whole collection of songs. I can't live with or without you. How long, how long must we sing this song? One of my least favorite U2 songs just repeats the word desire over and over and over again in the chorus. Another 80s classic, Eric Carmen, Hungry Eyes. One look at you and I can't disguise I've got hungry eyes. I'm a child of the 80s. I love 80s music. More recently, one of the main themes running throughout the Hamilton musical is found in the repeated refrain, he will never be satisfied. That runs through the whole story. He will never be satisfied. And so ask yourself, in light of these songs, in light of this theme, are you satisfied? Last week, we structured our outline around the word seeking. So let's put those two words together. Where are you seeking satisfaction? You have a great and abiding soul hunger and thirst. What do you seek to satisfy your soul? Last week we saw, seek self, find death, but seek Christ, find life. And we saw how you seek Christ through faith. Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe. Believe in him, on him, into him. And last week we saw Jesus encourage us to work for the food that endures to eternal life. This week we see Jesus tells us that he is the food that endures to eternal life. And that when we come to him and that when we believe in him, we shall not hunger and we shall never thirst. We shall be satisfied. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Soul satisfaction sounds pretty good. Contentment, rest, peace, all sound pretty good. And we all want that. Deep down, we all want that. That's why we're so desperately looking for it everywhere else. So let's take this time this morning to look at the only one in whom we find all of those things. But first, we're going to need to see the problem that the text reveals. You're not going to see the need for the solution if you don't first see the need for the problem. In the crowd, we will see an example of our universal problem. Point number one, man's mistaken attempts to satisfy his soul. Do you know how you mistakenly attempt to satisfy your soul? We'll look at that. 
That'll lead us then to point number two, God's gracious provision of soul satisfaction. And then application, well, how do you get what God has provided? Point number three, believe in Christ and find satisfaction for your soul. So let's start off by reading the text. This is the most important part. We believe that this is actually God's word. His words are far more important than mine. My job is to explain and open up and expose his words to you and trust him to work through them. So this is God speaking to you as I read this word. John chapter 6. We're teaching through verses 30 through 35. I'm going to start reading in verse 29 just to kind of help us pick up and ease into our text. So John 6, starting in verse 29, pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, whether we are aware of it or not, we come to you this morning hungry. Father, our souls are constantly seeking satisfaction. And this week, we have all of us sought to fill that hole and to satiate that hunger in various different ways. Father, show us the emptiness of everything apart from you. Father, show us how you are the only one who can satisfy our eternal souls. Show us how only an eternal, infinite object can satisfy our eternal souls. Father, show us Christ. Direct our attention to him. And open open our eyes and give us the ability to see how good and glorious he is. And draw us to him as the only one who can satisfy us. Father, I pray that you would help me. Father, most importantly, help me. Spiritually, help me to preach your word well. I desperately need your spirit to communicate your word to your people. Father, I pray that you would sustain me physically and sustain my voice and prevent it from being a distraction. Father, I pray that your word would be the focus. I pray that you would be the focus. Father, show us Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. All right, point number one, man's mistaken attempts to satisfy his soul. We have jumped into the middle of an ongoing conversation between Jesus and the crowd. Remember, this is the crowd that Jesus has just supernaturally fed with bread the day before. Remember the first part of chapter 6. There were 5,000 men, upwards of 20,000 people. And with only five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus feeds everyone. Verse 12, we saw all had eaten their fill. So their bellies were full. Their stomachs were satisfied. But the next day, this day, the day that we're reading about, their bellies are empty again. Their stomachs are no longer satisfied. And so, verse 24, they go seeking for Jesus. 
And this whole conversation is set in the context of that miracle or that sign, as John calls it. And remember, John desperately wants us to think of what Christ does, these supernatural works of Christ, as signs. Verse 2, we saw the crowd followed because they saw the signs Jesus had done. Verse 14, they saw the sign of the bread. Signs are significant. All signs are centrally significant. Christ's signs are centrally significant to this story. And so the question is, why did Jesus do this sign? Why did he feed them and satisfy their stomachs? What was his ultimate aim? What did Jesus want? Because it's clear what the crowd wants. Right? The crowd wants more food. They want empty stomachs filled. They want to be physically satisfied. Remember, that's what Jesus told them in verse 26. We saw in verse 26, hey, you're not seeking me for me. You're seeking me for food. You just want to eat some more. And then he graciously tried to help them in verse 27. He said, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't live first for that, but for this. Don't look ultimately for that, but for this. Don't seek satisfaction there. But here, right, he's trying to help them and direct their attention to what really matters. But they are not tracking with Jesus. And in the verse before our text for today that we read in verse 29, Jesus kindly told them what they need. Just believe. Not do, but believe. Not achieve, but receive me, he says. Which is, again, as we saw frequently in chapter 5, a confrontational claim of Christ. Jesus makes big claims about himself. He's saying, this is who I am. And those claims are either true or false. And this is one of those big claims. You've got to do something with this. There's nothing more important than to be doing the works of God. Jesus says, the work of God is to believe in me. This is the thing. Because I am the one. Again, that is quite a claim. Here's why you can't just be like, yeah, you know, Jesus, I kind of like some of his stuff. Eh, not really. Or, you know, I kind of like some of his teachings. He did some cool stuff. But, you know, you know what, take, it, take it or leave parts of it. No, he says, I'm it. I'm everything. It's either all or nothing. It's me or it's nothing. Significant claim. And as we saw, significant claims deserve substantial support. And the crowds get that. Look at verse 30. Jesus has just said, believe in me. The crowd says, well, then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Man, this is, not, this is pretty bold on their part, I think. Remember, the crowds are almost exclusively presented negatively in the Gospels. Right? The crowd is not where you want to be in the Gospels. I don't think their question here is a neutral question. I think they're pushing back. I think they're picking up on Jesus' language in verse 29 and challenging him. He said, work, work, work. There's been like four verses of the word work, and they're picking up on that. He says, you want us to do the work of believing. Well, what work do you do that we may believe? Again, they're saying, prove it. Or they specifically say, what sign do you do? And our first thought should be, wait a second, what We just saw that they just saw. Verse 14, when they saw the sign. Verse 2, they were following him because they saw the signs. Verse 30, what sign 
do you do? What's going on here? They had literally just seen the most supernatural of signs the day before. So what's going on here? There's two possibilities, and I think it's a little bit of both. Remember, first, this whole episode is couched in the context of the exodus from Egypt. Moses was mentioned twice at the end of chapter 5 to kind of seed the ground. Jesus is presenting himself as the true and better Moses. Jesus goes up on a mountain in verse 3, and then Jesus miraculously feeds the people with bread. And then we pick back up with Moses in verse 31. Look at verse 31. This is the crowd again speaking to Jesus. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are they doing? They're challenging Jesus directly and boldly. They saw the sign. So what are they saying? They're saying, okay, okay, Jesus, sure. You you fed 5,000 of us for one day. Pretty impressive. But Moses fed one million of us six days a week for 40 years. Plus, you just took some bread and multiplied it. Ah, That's pretty neat. Moses made it rain bread from heaven. What you got, Jesus? Right? That's basically what they're saying. Also, don't forget that we know what Jesus knows about the crowd. They're not actually interested in Jesus. They're interested in what they can get from Jesus. They don't want him, verse 26, they want bread. Hey, Moses fed us for 40 years. Come on, Jesus, feed us. That's why they ask for a sign. They just want more food. And second, we've already seen this, but sure, they saw the sign. But it did not open up their eyes. And they're happy now living without you. Ace of base. I saw the sign. 1992. Again, I'm trying to introduce you to good old 80s and early 90s music. They saw the sign, but they didn't actually see the sign. They saw, but they didn't understand. The point that we keep coming back to in John is that signs are never the point. Sometimes we're tempted to focus on the miracles of Jesus. That's not the point. Signs do not and cannot save. We are always so tempted to think, you know, if I could just see what they saw, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just hear God's voice, then I'd believe. But they saw, and they didn't believe. And we'll see why in great detail next week. But we need to understand this. You never have an evidence problem. As an unbeliever trying to decide whether to believe or not, you never have an evidence problem. As a believer trying to decide how much you really trust the Lord and finding confidence and hope and faith in Him, you never have an evidence problem. Evidence abounds. Again, just look around. Look at the beauty of the sky. We woke up this morning to to flakes of snow. One of my most uh, favorite things. I love snow. I moved up here from the south thinking that it snowed all the time in New York, and I was deceived. I was tricked. It doesn't snow very much. I want more snow. But then, frozen things fall from the ground and collect and beautify everything. That's amazing. Look at a tree. Look at anything in a microscope. Look at the great love that a father has for his daughter. And tell me that's just the accidental product of the random collision of atoms. Tell me that it's nothing more than my selfish genes firing off chemicals so that they can be protected and passed on. That lies. Look at a beautiful painting. Listen to the brilliance of Mozart. Evidence abounds. These things, thoughtful things, beautiful things, complex things, good things, can only be the product of a good mind creating and sustaining life. Evidence abounds. No one has an evidence problem. 
There's the famous story of the atheist philosopher uh, Bertrand Russell earlier in the 20th century. He was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing before God. And Russell's notorious reply was, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. He's terribly wrong. Evidence abounds. He just couldn't see it. That's next week, by the way. Come next week. He refused to see it. On Thursday, Jerry encouraged us from Romans chapter 1, which says that what can be known about God is plain to all. His power and existence are undeniably revealed in what he has made. Therefore, all are without excuse. We don't have an evidence problem. We have a heart problem. They didn't have an evidence problem. They saw the sign. They just didn't believe. They had a heart problem. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, Scripture says without qualification, everyone knows God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Happy Thanksgiving. Gratitude is profoundly theological. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. That's what we're seeing here with the crowd. This is what we'll look at in great detail next week. They wouldn't believe, they couldn't believe. And we've got to unpack that with what Jesus says in the next section of this passage. They had rejected what they know and exchanged it for a lie. Just think about what's going on here. They are staring God in the face. They had just seen what he could do. They were before the one who is soul satisfaction. And they're asking for a loaf of wheat bread. And they, like all of us, were dead in their trespasses and sins. Their souls were starved, and they had standing before them the one who is life itself, the one who can perfectly satisfy their souls, and all they want is one more meal. And this is what we all do in our sin, every time we sin. Okay, let's be careful about condemning the crowds. We are. No different. We seek satisfaction apart from the one who is satisfaction. We focus on the physical and temporary and neglect the spiritual and eternal. And that's exactly what the crowd is doing here. And you desperately need to know how you personally tend to do this. You've heard the term um, self-medicate, right? You've heard the term uh, self-medicate, correct? Do you know how you are prone to self-medicate? What do you tend to turn to when you seek satisfaction? Let's be honest. Life is hard. And life is often miserable. What do you look to to help you get through it? It's kind of like the flu. The flu is hard. It's often miserable. So we get through it in part with medication. I love NyQuil. I love that stuff. We get something to help numb and ease the miserable physical symptoms and help us sleep longer and deeper so that we can simply survive the flu. How many of us are just getting through life like that? What do you use to help numb and ease the miserable emotional, mental, social, spiritual symptoms so that you can simply survive life? We all self-medicate. How do you self-medicate? Do you know how you self-medicate? Some eat, 
Some exercise, some work, some work out, some sleep, some run, some binge watch Netflix, some doom scroll social media, some daydream, some invest, some obsess over politics, some pursue illicit relationships, some pursue illicit pornography, some play video games, some do illegal drugs, some do legal drugs, some drink, some post, some modify themselves, some on and on and on and on we could go. The various ways that we tend to self-medicate. Modern life is so miserable and so empty that we all look to something to give us some sort of meaning or at least numb and distract us from the misery of life. And we heard it last week from Martin Lloyd-Jones. You have a soul. The most important thing about you is that you have a soul that goes on into eternity. How do you seek to satisfy that soul? Where do you look to satisfy the hunger within It starts with knowing yourself and knowing how you tend to medicate yourself. Where do you seek satisfaction? I've had to wrestle with some of this this week. It's it's pretty silly, uh, but a very minor injury. I'm not on crutches, thankfully, anymore. Um, Good news, i got a half marathon tomorrow, so I'm glad I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, Joking, I'm not running tomorrow. But a very minor injury that keeps me from running for one week. Yeah, it's messed with me a little bit. And I've had to intentionally combat the possibility of it actually really messing with me. I've come to love running. I love pushing myself. I love being out on the road early in the morning. I love the runner's high as a thing. I love trying to go longer and faster. I love competing. I love lots of time to do nothing but think, pray, and listen to books, and then just wear myself out physically. All of those are good things. All of those can be good things. But all of those can become deadly things. If I let them become ultimate things, I have to be aware of that and resist that. I have to pray against that. I have to enjoy running, but keep it in its proper place, which is quite low in the grand scheme of things. Nicole provocatively asked me like last Sunday, hey, you know, what do you think God's teaching you through this injury? I, was like, ah. I don't know. And part of it was don't run, right? Because I physically couldn't run. So that was, that was part of it. How silly that I could be at least tempted toward finding my identity in a very average and unremarkable running ability. Right, come on. How stupid is that? How dumb that I can flirt with sadness because I can't run for a week? Right, what a foolish heart must I have? What about you? You're no better than me. Where do you seek to do it? Where do you seek satisfaction? Or, or, or putting it in another way, What are your idols? Or where do you find your identity? Your idolatry is directly connected to your identity. Whatever you tend to identify yourself with is what you tend to worship as an idol. Idolatry, identity, go together. What are you tempted to worship, to love, and to live for? We always need to be asking ourselves those basic diagnostic questions. What truly thrills you and excites you? What do you desire and seek? What do you fear? What devastates you? What do you most think about? Most spend your time on? Most spend your money on? How would you fill this blank? My life will only have meaning, purpose, and value if. How would you answer that question? That goes a long way in helping you understand what you love and live for. Those things can reveal to you the idols of your heart. They can help show you how you are tempted to mistakenly attempt to satisfy your soul. That's the crowd. That's the whole of mankind apart 
from the grace of God. They just want some more food. They just want to satisfy their stomachs. Jesus himself is standing before them, and they say, hey, give me, give me some bread. That's us, apart from grace. That's the crowd. Point number two. God's gracious provision of soul satisfaction. The movement is always us and our problem, God and his solution. Guilt to grace. Back to the text. Back to Jesus. We've been looking and listening um, to the crowd. Let's look at and listen to Christ. They've basically challenged him in verses 30 and 31. Hey, Moses fed us with bread from heaven for 40 years. Come on, Jesus, step up. Let's see how he responds. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. All right, so first off, Jesus says, Hey, you make a big deal about Moses and what Moses did, but but let's be clear. It wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but the Father, my Father. It wasn't Moses, but God. So you've missed the true source of that bread. And... You've missed the true point of that bread, which was the same as the point of the bread with which I just fed you with yesterday, which is always to point to me. And by missing the point of the bread, you've missed the true bread entirely, which is what? Verse 33, Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread is not a what. Not a thing, but a who, a he. Jesus, he's building towards verse 35. He's building towards this great revelation, the great point of the text, the great point of the bread. But before explicitly revealing himself as that bread, he starts here by implicitly revealing himself as that bread. And he does so in part by specifying, actually one of six times in this discourse, he emphasizes this a lot, that this bread is from heaven or that it comes down from heaven. Six times he says that. And what is that? It's the incarnation. It's John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I preached from that text on December 20th of last year. And I titled that sermon, The Most Important Thing That Has Ever Happened. And today is the first Sunday of Advent. So it's officially Christmas season. right? Merry Christmas. And so you know what's coming next. Right? Are you tired of my Christmas scrooginess yet? Right, let's get started early uh, this year. Because it's the first Sunday of Advent. This is the beginning of the season of Advent. So why aren't we lighting some pink and purple candles up here? Why aren't we doing anything differently today? Why don't we celebrate Advent? Right, the answer's pretty simple. Because it's not in the Bible. It's not complicated. Verse 33 is about the incarnation, the most important thing that has ever happened. God has become man. Christmas is supposedly about the incarnation. God has become man. The most important thing that has ever happened. And so what's the problem, Matt? Why are you such a jerk about Christmas and Advent? You know, I don't don't try to be. My desire is not to make you miserable. My concern is that maybe we've missed something important. My concern is that maybe we so focus on this one day, again, a day not in or commanded in Scripture. My concern is that maybe we so focus on these four days leading up to that one day, four days not in or commanded in Scripture, 
Maybe, it's a theory, maybe we do all of that in part because we don't really understand or appreciate the significance of this day, of the Lord's Day, of every Sunday. See, Scripture nowhere commands us to celebrate and commemorate the incarnation of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ on some special holiday. Because it commands us and to, and to celebrate and commemorate the incarnation and crucifixion of Christ on every Lord's Day, every Sunday. This is our holiday. You know what that word means, right? You just change the I to a Y. And a holiday is a holy day. And biblically, Christians have no holy days. But this day, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, every Sunday. I'm in the middle of right now trying to figure out as a church what that is and what that means. But what I do know is that it's a lot more important than we think that it is. So my goal is not to minimize your joy by de-emphasizing two days a year. My goal is to maximize your joy by emphasizing 52 days a year. You see, God has become man. The bread of God has come down from heaven to give life to the world. And we celebrate that today. And next Sunday, and the next, and the next, and Christmas Sunday, on Easter Sunday, and just as much on some random Sunday in the worst month of the year, which is August, by the way. It's always August. This is too good and too important to focus on for just two days a year. We need to focus on it every day of the year. And then we specifically gather together to worship God for those things these 52 days a year. I don't want less. I want more. I want more joy and emphasis and delight in the Lord's day. I want us to be excited. Well, this, this would be wild. I want us to be excited, as excited, about every Sunday as we are about Christmas. What if we were as committed to not missing Sunday as we would be committed to not missing Christmas? What if the Lord's Day is infinitely better than this, this Christmas thing that we've created? The bread of God has come down from heaven to give life to the world, and that changes everything. And that is life. I don't want you to celebrate that less. I want you to celebrate it more, because this is the thing that God has done. This is God's gracious provision for the satisfaction of your soul. The bread of God, the metaphor is simple, bread is life, and that bread is he who comes down from heaven, the Son of God who is life. Jesus says that this is the bread that you need. I said this last year. I'm borrowing this for myself, which sounds really arrogant, um, but I thought, it was, I thought it was pretty good. So I'm using it again. So like, I don't know if you can get in trouble for plagiarizing yourself, but this is from myself. Um, verse 33, again, it's, it's the incarnation. You know what carne is, right? You know carne, right? I love chili con carne, right? It's just chili with meat. Carne is meat, incarnation. Yeah, I don't want this to be respectful. Maybe this will help us hear it as some of them would have initially heard it. The incarnation tells us that Jesus is God with meat. He is God in flesh. Flesh is the bread. And so the, question, the most important question is, is why? Why did Christ come in this way? Why did the word become flesh? And it's quite simple, really. It's because you are flesh. And many churches 
The reading of Scripture is followed by a quotation of Psalm 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we think that Isaiah is talking about literal grass and flowers fading in the fall and the winter and, and dying. But he's not. Two verses before that, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Verse 7 says, Surely the people are grass. So when Isaiah says the, the grass withers and the flower fades, he's talking about us. What he really says there is the flesh withers, the people fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And it is this, it is this fading flesh that can't even run without hurting itself. It is this fading flesh that God himself, the son of God, takes on. Why does he do that? Hebrews 2 tells us. If you want to flip there, you can. Page 1002. Listen to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Remember, Jesus has opened up and unpacked. He's talking about the incarnation. Why did he come down? Why did he become flesh? Hebrews 2, verse 14. Page 1002. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Oh, catch this. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. B.J. has preached a great sermon on this text. So go, go find B.J.'s sermon on this text. We don't have time to do it justice. But it says quite simply that since we are flesh, he took on flesh. The bread came down from heaven. By the way, where was that bread born? Where was the bread born? In Bethlehem, which means what? The house of bread, right? Again, that's not, that's not accidental. The bread is born into the house of bread. But that bread, in coming down from heaven, in taking on flesh, in a sense, became meat. And he did all of this for the satisfaction of your soul. This is Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. This is God's perfect provision for the satisfaction of your soul. And it's perfect because it's the one and only thing that you need. It's the only thing that could save and satisfy. Because this gets to the very heart of the gospel that is eternally good news for your hungry soul. Your soul, which apart from Christ, is dead. Remember point number one. Man's mistaken attempt to satisfy his soul. Why is that? Why do we all do that? Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We get the first part of that phrase. All have sinned. What about the second part? What does that mean? What does it mean that we fall short of the glory of God? Think about that. There's actually some debate about it. We can't get into it in detail. But remember, we just read a minute ago, Romans 1.23, where we saw that our problem was that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal man and things. We gave up the substance for the shadow. We, like the crowd, preferred things created by God over God himself. God who is the all-glorious one. The one in whom is manifest excellence, absolute perfection, royal majesty, full joy, perfect pleasure, beautiful blessedness. That's who God is. We can barely begin to comprehend his greatness and his goodness. And what did he do in the beginning? He created us, this God that I just described, he created us in his image and likeness. The God of all glory created us like him. And yet, 
in our sin, we rejected him. Right? Sin rejects God. We, we chose sin, Satan, and self over God, blessing, and life. And in so doing, we fell short of the glory of God. In the sense that we lost what we originally possessed, conformity to God's perfect image. That's what we had. And as a result of that, we lost the privilege of perfect communion with the God of all glory. The God who is life itself. We lost both the glory of God in the sense that we were created in his image. And we also lost the glory from God in that we lost the perfect praise and love and affirmation and acceptance that came from him. That's why you're desperately seeking satisfaction somewhere else. Because you lost that. And what's the result of losing that? Misery. The old confessions always use the word misery in connection with sin. Loss. Loneliness. Death. The wages of sin is death. That's why this mistaken attempt to satisfy our soul is no small thing. Because we were created by God for God and his glory. And in our sin we say, no thanks. We reject that. And we get death as a result. In our sin, we lose our very identity and our very meaning and our very purpose. We lose our very life. And yet, in response to all of that, John 6.33, the bread of God comes down from heaven. The God of all glory takes on flesh, our flesh, and gives life to the world. How? In by by dealing with our sin problem. The sin problem that causes our death problem. Verse 51, he'll tell us, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember, meat, carne. That's Jesus. He comes down from heaven to take on flesh, to lay down that flesh and die for us in our place. Because of the sin which is death. Something has to be done about that sin. Something has to be done about that death. And the most important thing that has ever happened, the thing that we gather together to remember and rehearse every Sunday, is that God himself has come and become man to live, die, and rise again for us and the forgiveness of our sins. And church, Christian, listen, there's nothing else like this. We get so uncomfortable, like so terribly comfortable with this and so apathetic about it because we think that we know it and we think that we understand it. There's nothing else like this. And there's no one else like this. This is our God. This is how good he is. This is grace. The grace that is the whole of Christian theology. The grace that is life because Jesus himself is the grace of God. This is the bread, the life, the sustenance, the satisfaction that you need. And so what should our response to this be? Well, it actually should not be verse 34. Look at verse 34. Back to the crowd. Back to their response to all this. Sir, give us this bread. Always. Sounds good, initially. But why am I saying this should not be your response? Well, it's because we know that they don't get it. That's why Jesus is going to have to clarify in verse 35. That's why he moves from implicit claim, verse 33, to explicit claim, verse 35. They're still thinking about bread. They're still thinking purely in physical terms. They're still mistakenly seeking to satisfy themselves apart from Christ. And we know this, as we'll see next week, because after Jesus clarifies what he's saying for a couple of verses, we'll read in verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, 
I am the bread that came down from heaven. Their response to all this is not gratitude, but grumbling. They don't want Jesus. They want bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread. They're like, ah, no thanks. They're not seeking Jesus himself. They're seeking Jesus as a means to get what they think will satisfy themselves. They have entirely missed God's gracious provision of soul satisfaction. How can you not entirely miss God's gracious provision of soul satisfaction? So that's what we're going to look at in great detail next week. So don't miss next week. There's a great couple of verses coming up. But for now, it's point number three. Believe in Christ and find satisfaction for your soul. Look at verse 35. This is the big idea. Let's close with this. Leave with this lingering in your mind. Spend your week stewing in this. Be hearers and doers of this word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am. In the Greek, it's ego, I me, E-I-M-I. It's the same as up in verse 20. We just saw this in verse 20. Ego, I me. And grammatically, in the Greek, this is a bit of a strange and redundant construction. Ego is the first person pronoun, I. Just says I. I, me, is the first person singular verb of to be. So it just says, which means I am. So literally in the Greek, it says, I, I am. Generally, you'd use only one or the other. Jesus uses both, which must be an intentional reference back to Exodus 3.14 and God's revelation of himself and of his name to Moses as I am. Jesus is claiming that for himself. I am. Meaning, I am God. And this, as we've just seen, is how he is bread. Because he is the one for whom we were originally created. The one for whom we were originally created to revolve around, to survive and thrive on. He is that one that we rejected come down to us, for us, to restore us to himself. I am the bread of life. And in the Greek, there's an article in front of life also. I'm not Greek intelligent enough to know why uh, the translators leave it out, but it literally says, I am the bread of the life. The life. And there's no other life. Spiritual life. Life eternal. The glory of God. The life of God in the soul of man. That's Jesus. And he said, you can have that now. That life, the, the quality and nature of eternal life breaking in now and providing that satisfaction for you now. And so Jesus starts off that by saying, I am the bread of life. And just as we've seen that John seems to structure his book around these seven signs of Jesus, John also, starting here, gives us seven I am sayings of Jesus. This is the first one. Jesus, as we're going to go from here, is going to say, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Seven I am sayings. You can talk about big claims. And you know what all those big claims are ultimately about? They're about life. Bread is life. Light is life. Door is the entrance to life. The good shepherd is the one who leads and feeds. He is life. Resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Abide in me. That's how you live. It's all about life. 
Again, look at where it's found. Look at how it's found. So much of our life is all about and oriented around me, 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 I, I, I. But here we see where true life is found. All about and oriented around him. Where Jesus says, I, 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 I am. I am life. And I am all of those things for you. You don't find your life within yourself. You don't find your life seeking yourself. You find it outside of yourself seeking Christ. Not I, but Christ, the great I am. He is where? He is the one in whom you will find satisfaction for your souls. And how do you get it? How do you gain this Christ to his life? He tells us. He says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me. And those are the same thing. Those are synonymous. You come to Jesus by believing in Jesus. And again, as we saw last week, not just believing some things about Jesus, but believing into Jesus. Faith is the grace-based movement of the soul into Christ. We're trying to move beyond faith as believing some facts about Jesus to faith as delight in Jesus. Faith finds soul satisfaction in Jesus. Is your soul satisfied in Christ? Do you love him? Do you delight in him? Because this is what it means to be a Christian. Right? Again, like, kind of like I've said before, the, the word love has so lost its meaning that it's almost not very helpful these days. Belief and faith sometimes uh, have that same kind of effect. Biblically, these are correct terms, but the terms biblically have so much of a more robust meaning than we give to them that they're sometimes not helpful. Do you love him? Do you delight in him? This is what a Christian is. It's not... Faith is not to extent to some historical facts about Jesus. It's to find your life in Jesus. It's to have a passion for and a pleasure in Jesus. It's to delight in all that he is and all that he does because look at who he is. He is the bread of life. Come down from heaven to give life to the world, to give life to your soul. Is he your life? That's what he offers in verse 35. We've considered our great soul hunger We've considered how we tend to seek and satisfy that hunger. But Jesus says, come to me and you shall not hunger. Believe in me and you shall never thirst. This is what we just read in Isaiah 55. Where God himself says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Jesus is the waters. God says, why do you seek and spend and work and live for that which does not satisfy? When Christ satisfies completely. And to be clear, by satisfying the soul, I mean he is the only solution to the problem of the soul. The sin problem of the soul. He is the grace that is your only hope. He is the forgiveness of the sins that separate you from the God who is life. He is the provision of the righteousness that justifies you and brings you back into the presence of the God who is life. He is the restorer of your soul by being the one who restores you to fellowship with God himself who is life. Come to him and be satisfied. Believe in him and live. Listen, it starts with realizing the truth of point number one. It starts with seeing your mistaken attempts to satisfy your own soul. It starts with realizing the eternal hunger of your own soul. Trying to satisfy it with everything else. 
Everything keeps letting you down. It doesn't work. And so then seeing him as the only solution, as the only true and eternal satisfaction for your soul. So stop looking elsewhere. Stop living as if satisfaction is elsewhere. Look to him. And then by faith, start living as if he actually is satisfaction. What would that look like for you? That would look differently for each of us. But what would you need to change? How can you better spend your time? How can you more consistently come to him and more intentionally labor for the food that endures to eternal life? Listen, the crowd wanted more. You're always looking for more. Yet, you always get more and find that you don't get satisfaction. So give up. Quit. Sometimes quitting is good. Start looking for that more in him. Strive by faith and through prayer to believe that it's actually found only in him. And then cry out to him and ask for help and then take steps in faith to actually find it in him. It's found in the word where Christ is found. Listen, I promise you, he will not disappoint you. And I promise you, because I've tried most everything else, everything else will ultimately and eventually disappoint you. Nothing else will satisfy you. And know that by definition, because you were created to be satisfied by God himself. And here he is in Christ, come to satisfy your soul. So you've tried everything else. Try him. He is the bread of life. And he is satisfaction for our eternal souls. If you would bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful offer. Thank you for how gracious and good you are to us. Father, forgive us for ever judging your goodness based upon our current circumstances. May we always judge your goodness based upon the cross. Based upon Christ. And based upon what you have revealed to us here um, in this word. Father, we thank you for sending to us the bread who is life. We thank you for sending to us your very Son, God himself, come in the flesh to live and die and rise again so that we could be restored to you. Father, give us eyes to see him as life. Give us hearts to desire him. May we, like uh, David, pant and hunger and thirst for you and believe that we find fulfillment only in you. Father, we thank you that you are so patient with us. You are so compassionate and kind, as we read in Isaiah 55, that you are not like us in that you are so much more compassionate than us. And so we thank you that you work with us in our weakness. We thank you that you have promised to see us through to the end. We thank you that, as we'll see next week, that it is your grace and grace alone that begins this process and will bring it to an end. And so, Father, help us to trust in you and to rest in you. Father, help us to find great rest and satisfaction in our souls in Jesus Christ. And we ask and we pray all this in his name. Amen.